Welcome back to Outside the Box. I'm Michael Desch. I'm the director of the Notre Dame International Security Center, and I'm also a professor of international politics. My partner in this uh, enterprise is uh, former senator, uh, former secretary of the Navy, and Democratic presidential aspirant, Jim Webb. Jim, good to be with you again. Former presidential aspirant Democrat. <laughs> are, you making, are you making a statement? <laughs> Just clarifying your comment. <laughs> well, uh, Jim, a uh, couple of weeks ago, we had the pleasure of uh, hosting you here on campus at the University of Notre Dame. Uh, you gave a... Uh, marvelous uh, set of remarks during your visit and uh, also uh, got to participate in the uh, flag ceremony on the field uh, for the Notre Dame Navy game. Did you have any mixed feelings as a Naval Academy graduate uh, consorting with uh, all the domers? Uh, it was a great week. It was a great week. And I, and I came away with a uh real appreciation for the, uh, the style of uh, education that uh, Notre Dame has. And uh, I, I appreciate all the, uh, the things that you, we were able to do. My wife came at one point, as you know, Hong, and uh, just great meetings all the way around and uh, appreciate being there. Yeah. Well, Good it was game, great. More or less. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe had a great first quarter. Yep. <laughs> Yeah, it, it was uh, it was a lot of fun. It's a uh, special game every year uh, for Notre Dame uh, because of, of course, the uh, the history, um, but uh, also uh, it's living history in the sense that uh, Notre Dame is uh, deeply committed to uh, the world and particularly to uh, those of its students who go on to serve in the world uh, the way you served and uh, well, the way our uh, guest today has also served in uniform. Yeah, I think that the sense of, of purpose that is put into the educational system in Notre Dame is uh, really admirable. And since you mentioned the remarks that I, that I gave as your uh, distinguished fellow at the International Security Center. I think uh, our guest today uh, fits right in with uh, the concerns that I was raising and very, very glad to have uh, General Bolger with us today. Speaking of our guest, I think that's my cue for uh, introducing uh, my old friend, uh, former classmate um, and author uh, of almost as many books as my partner, uh, Jim Webb. Uh, Dan Bolger, uh, I met uh, when I was in graduate school at the University of Chicago. He was uh, one of two uh, very impressive army captains uh, who were uh, going to uh, Chicago to get allegedly uh, a master's degree. Um, Andy Toomey uh, was in the political science department, um, but uh, our guest today, Dan Bolger, uh, was in the uh, history department. Dan had come into the program a distinguished graduate of the Citadel and uh, had already 
um, had a, uh, a couple of uh, uh, assignments, uh, including one commanding a mechanized infantry uh, platoon was it a platoon command or a company command when you went to the uh, national training center in one of the early uh, training rotations there yeah i was a uh, rifle company commander at that time rifle company and then he wrote a book about it um and uh so he came into the program uh the history program the phd program <laughs> the dubious distinction of having a time to completion uh, of 10 years for a PhD. Um, and Dan came in with a two-year window uh, and not only finished his master's degree, um, but defended a, uh, a, a PhD that the great historian Akira Irie uh, said, uh, had he had another year to uh, revise it, uh, could have been uh, a very good book um, on a uh, university press. And that's really sort of been uh, the story of your military career, Dan, of uh, over uh, overachieving, or as the Soviets saying, uh, over fulfilling the plan. So I sort of lost track of Dan a little bit, um, but uh, the next time uh, he sort of came up on the radar screen was uh, he published an article. I think it was, was it in Parameters or Military Review right after the first Gulf War entitled The Ghosts of Omdurman, uh, basically uh, being the skunk at the uh, triumphalist uh, garden party after the quick victory um, in the uh, Hundred Hour War. And as I recall the basic punchline of that piece, uh, you said, look, this was a stunning victory, but likely to be pretty irrelevant to uh, the things that uh, the army is gonna have to do in the coming years. This was, was this 93 or 94? No, this it came was, I think the article actually came out in late um, 91. It yeah. was in Parameters, which is the journal of the U.S. Army War College. Yeah, uh, very, very uh, prescient. Um, and uh, uh, also, though, a little bit counterintuitive to, uh, you know, the general uh, uh, gestalt, uh, you know, among your colleagues in, uh, in green. Um, and uh, I think I remember a letter from a retired general officer following up uh, your piece, which sort of suggested, uh, at least reading between the lines, that it might not be such a good career move for a uh, uh, a uh, aspiring uh, army officer. But nonetheless, uh, you uh, uh, may, became general officer. I saw you again for the first time when you were CG at uh, the Joint Readiness Training Command uh, at Fort Polk. Um, and then you uh, got a second star and division command, uh, commanding the uh, uh, 1st Cavalry Regiment. Uh, and then, of course, your uh, three-star uh, billet um, uh, in Afghanistan. Uh, so that's been a hell of a career. Uh, and a career uh, marked not only um, by achievement uh, in uniform, but also uh, really uh, great prescience the you know the parameters piece i thought 
uh, was quite prescient. And your 2014 book, Why We Lost, uh, also uh, was very prescient, especially given uh, the events uh, recently in Kabul, which uh, you unfortunately uh, uh, nailed uh, right on the head. So uh, I'm sorry your book is having a second life uh, for the country, um, but I'm glad your book is having a second life for you uh, and a great opportunity to have you join uh, Senator and Senator Webb and myself here on Outside the Box. Uh, welcome back, welcome back, Dan Bolger. Well, thanks very much, Mike, and, and thanks to Senator Webb for hosting me today. But I got to tell you, I would much rather be totally wrong about that 2014 book than what's happened. That's not anything I, I take any pleasure from. I can tell you that, uh, you know, just a tragic outcome for us and for the Afghan people and, and frankly, also for the Iraqi people who are having their own problems. Right. But there's a... Uh you know, a important element uh, of military training, which you've done throughout your career, both uh, being the object of it and uh, also the administrator uh, of the after action review. Um, and it seems to me what makes your book so timely um, is not just that, you know, you predicted the unfortunate uh, denouement that uh, we saw in Kabul, but also as a, uh, a, a teaching moment. Uh, how should we think about uh, why we lost, uh, not only retrospectively, but prospectively, Dan? Well, I think, Mike, you know, you, you nailed it there. The military teaches you to make a honest assessment of how operations go. Um, you know, leave aside public relations stuff. Certainly the troops always try hard, we know that, and, and they do their best. But when we look at what decisions the leadership make or don't make, what, what command did or didn't do, we gotta be pretty hard on ourselves. And, uh, and I think in the particular case of the, the fighting since, since the 9-11 attacks, um, we have missed opportunities to assess our own performance. I think we, we sort of swallowed our public relations bathwater and we're choking on it now. Dan, what I would like to do with the time that I have today is to in, in, engage in an, uh, a conversation and an examination of what has happened to the general officer corps, the flag level officer corps in our military, particularly over the last uh, 20 years. And um, let me start by saying in terms of looking at what was going to happen in Iraq and Afghanistan. Like you, I had uh, some pretty unfortunate experiences at the beginning of these uh, post 9-11 operations in terms of having to express my own views about where things were going wrong from the beginning. I grew up in the military. I've been around it all my life. Um, my, I served in the military. My son served as a Marine. 0311 infantry riflemen in uh, Ramadi, Iraq, during, during some of the uh, very bad fightings there. And um, at the same time, I, I think I, I could see uh, as someone who, who uh, had been through these experiences uh, that this was going wrong from the beginning. I wrote a piece uh, for the Washington Post five months before the 
invasion of Iraq, saying this would be a strategic blunder if we did it, that the people who were putting this uh, invasion into place did not intend to leave. That's why there was no exit strategy. They didn't want one. Uh, we should be prepared to be there for the next 20 to 30 years. And is that a good thing for the country? And with respect to Afghanistan, I wrote a piece two days after 9-11 because I could see where all this was going. And it was basically my view of how do you fight international terrorism? And one of the key points in this piece was do not occupy territory. This should be a, a, an engagement of, of uh, maneuver warfare, not building up uh, you know, big bases and these sorts of things as we, as we ended up doing. So I, I look at that and I, in your writings, one thing that I, I respect very much uh, is basically your humility and your willingness to, to try to get your arms around this, but you don't see that much these days. And I want to, um, if you don't mind, I'm gonna read like a sentence um, out of your, your prologue in your book. Time after time, despite the fact that I and my fellow generals saw it wasn't working, we failed to reconsider our basic assumptions. We failed to question our flawed understanding of our foe and of ourselves, and we simply asked for more time. When I read that, this is, this is a, um, maybe a little bit uh, from, the, uh, from the side uh, in, in terms of where you think I might be going here, but in 1996, I spent 11 days with Marcus Wolf, who was the uh, great spy master of East Germany uh, during the Cold War. Not a master spy, but a spy master. He's the one who moved all the pieces uh, going into West Germany. And he had been doing this since he was 22 years old, uh, all the way up to the fall of the, uh, uh, the Berlin Wall. And I was asked by Paramount Pictures to write a uh, screenplay on his life. I did three months of research and went over and spent 11 days with him. And the question I kept coming back to him was, when did you know in your heart that this was going to fail the communist experience, the communist experiment in East Germany? And he said, 1952. He said, when we saw uh, in, in a strike that the uh, East Germans uh, in, in the Germans in East Berlin tried to, uh, you know, to, to engage in, and the Soviet army had to come in and put it down. He said, I knew this was not going to work. And yet he stayed in his position all the way until 1990. Um, and my question is really, when did you see that this wasn't going to work? Well, um, that is the question I think for all of us. Um, and and a lot of us certainly wouldn't compare the U.S. military leadership to, to the head of the East German Stasi, but, uh, but we all had that same time where we, uh, we figured out it wasn't going to work. In my case, I first deployed to Iraq in February 2005 um, as a deputy corps commander. I did that job for a couple months before moving over to command um, the advisory force working with the Iraqi armed forces. And uh, I can tell you, um, within a few weeks, when I saw how, what we were looking at and what we were measuring and how we were trying to grasp progress, it was, it was obvious to me we were in a war of attrition. It was a counterinsurgency. The American, way too many American troops, really no understanding of the Iraqis at all. I, I mean, I'm not that great of a historian, but I did study the war you fought in Vietnam. 
And I I'm, immediately I had this image, crap, this must have been what it was like, you know, sitting outside Fubai in 1966. You already, you could see this thing was going in the wrong direction. Uh, your comment about planning, no planning for an exit strategy, the U.S. Army, and I can say this having been the G3 of the Army, the Operation Chief um, in 2010, 2011, when you would say, what is the plan for the war? All they would pull out was the deployment schedule. And it was nothing but a series of little, of little colored patches of the units who were going to deploy every so-and-so number of months on an infinitum. And in fact, when they handed me the first paper version of it, they said, well, this is the biggest sheet of paper we have. We actually have a version that goes out to 2050, but we don't have a piece of a printer big enough for it. <laughs> as soon as I heard that, I mean, that like confirmed what I'd seen back in 05. We, we had blundered into a counterinsurgency and worse, we blundered into two of them at once. We had the one in Afghanistan that we hadn't really resolved and it was not going right. And the, and the Iraq one, as you pointed out in your, in your pre-invasion comments, I mean, we had Saddam Hussein contained in the aftermath of the, the Iraq war we won, the 1991 war, um, the Desert Storm War. Um, and we had them contained by an air and sea blockade. Uh, you know, why we felt compelled to go in there and remove him and, and occupy Iraq. I, I guess the other thing I would comment for what it's worth, I, I also worked on the advisory side in my, in my position, in my command in, in Afghanistan. So I spent a lot of time with the Iraqis and the Afghans, with their soldiers, with their police, with their little bitty air forces, with their special ops, out on operations with them, all this. Time and time in both countries, I had relatively educated Iraqis both in and out of uniform say the following thing to me. Hey, either run our country as a colony like the British used to do, take charge, reorganize everything, you know, basically fix our state to be like your country or get the hell out. You're in the worst possible situation. You're an uninvited guest that won't leave, that sort of run around the country whacking people. And, uh, you know, they were right. We should have probably listened to them. I, I, I don't doubt that some of those same sentiments were probably expressed in South Vietnam in, in you know, circa 1967. Um, we're not good at counterinsurgency. We're particularly not good at it with conventional forces. That's the exact wrong approach. Guarantees. It undermines the legitimacy of the forces that we serve alongside. You know, the Baghdad and Kabul governments then, now, and as we saw this summer, were absolutely illegitimate in the minds of the average Iraqi or Afghan because they were seen as American puppets. And you know what? They were American puppets. So I think the people in the villages were right. Well, I think uh, the comment about asking if we might want to take over the role of the Brits in Afghanistan sort of had, had its own uh, predictable conclusion as well. You know what happened to, to that? Absolutely. Just parenthetically, I mean, I, this is a, for another, another conversation, but I have a, a, a much more uh, positive view of what we were doing in Vietnam than uh, a lot of people. I spent a lot of time studying that. I've been in Vietnam uh, every year, but two since 1991. Um, work with the Vietnamese community here, and I can I can see where they were going, uh, and uh, the the end result could have been something much different than it than it was. Just to set that aside, I, I think the situations that we were seeing in, in Iraq and Afghanistan were were much uh, much less workable, much more unworkable than what was happening. In, in Vietnam, and when you mentioned um, Afghanistan and, and also the, the troop buildup and these sort of things, 
when I was in Afghanistan in 04, I think we had maybe, I don't know, 10 to 10,000 Americans there. I was in nine different places. I got a fairly good look at, at, at the country. I don't pretend to be an expert on, on Afghanistan. But we, we multiplied by 10 that number once they decided that we were going to do some of this uh, nation, nation building. And I think that's really where this totally became unwinnable. The, 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 no matter how good the, our troops were, and they were good, uh, they were not going to solve that problem. Exactly right, sir. And I'll tell you, um, I should have mentioned this at the outset. My son's also, he's a West Point class of 2010. He was an armor officer. He was both an Iraq and Afghan veteran. I actually had the experience of going out on operations with him and his Afghan units. He was an advisor in Afghanistan. And um, your comment's exactly right. The, the local forces did what you would expect them to do. They, they would back off of operations, let the Americans do it because we were there in such great numbers. And, um, and I don't blame, I mean, I would do the same. If I had a good, good army that would do the fighting for me, I would also let them take the lead. But I think it really undermined the legitimacy of the governments in Kabul and Baghdad when they were so heavily reliant on large numbers of American conventional forces. Dan, do you think that there was uh, a way around that? I mean, I get the uh, argument that, um, you know, we uh, were giving the men a fish rather than teaching them how to fish, which is, you know, sort of. Uh, we were beating uh, them over the head with the fish. Yeah, beating them over the head with the fish. Um, but what was there, looking back at it, was there a way to uh, put the, uh, let's talk about Afghanistan, put the uh, ANA out in front uh, in a way that they would be effective without us, uh, you know, being, uh, you know, too, uh, overweening, which, you know, pretty clearly, uh, was the case. Um, or, yeah, or, go yeah I, I think there was. And I mean, if, if you look at our own counterinsurgency, um, document, you know, we're Americans, so we rarely read the manual for anything to include our own <laughs> military manuals sometimes, which are not all that bad. Um, but our counterinsurgency lessons learned from the Cold War, Vietnam, Korea, Thailand, you know, the Philippines, all, you know, Central and South America, pretty much clearly said, hey, the number one thing you need is the local forces must take the lead. And we would send in advisors. They might be conventional advisors. They might be special forces of various types, whatever it took. But that was a small footprint. And the United States might provide some key specialties, intelligence support, some logistics, medical support, maybe some airstrikes, but not a big footprint. And, and the, the vision of what this creature looks like might be our effort in the Philippines after World War II against the Hucks. It might be what, what happened in, in El Salvador in the 1980s. Um, but clearly, the local forces are providing the majority of the troops. Now, the hazard with that, to go back to a, a world that that Senator Webb, as a former Secretary of the Navy and then a U.S. Senator and all that, knows only too well, that does not produce a rapid result. Um, if you're going to let the local people lead, it's going to be two steps forward, one step back. Sometimes two step forward, three steps back. Um, they're going to, they are going, they're not going to follow um, the Geneva and Hague conventions because they don't understand that kind of stuff or don't care about it. Um, they're going to produce sometimes horrific video of what happens in villages when you're trying to sort out which person so they enclose a grill and who's a farmer. Um, and I think there's, at least from what I detected, and again, I was a 
uh, colonel and then a brigadier general when the decisions to enter Afghanistan and Iraq were made um, in 2001 and 2003 to enter in force with a lot of American troops. Um, I, I, my sense is that uh, those decisions were made with a Washington timeline in terms of we want a quick result. We want, you know, even though that we were so-called open-ended in Iraq and Afghanistan, there was always the feeling, well, next year is going to turn the corner. Next year is going to do the trick. And it, and it almost reminded me of the stuff I've read and, and now try to teach students about, about these offenses on the Western Front in World War I, where, you know, if you talk to General Haig or, or General Joffre, you know, for the French, General Haig for the British, they were, all, they were always convinced one more big push would do it. The Germans were always just about to crack. And of course, that was never the case. And, uh, and you know, thankfully, we never had the horrendous losses that were suffered in World War I, but the losses were bad enough. And we should never forget that the real losers of these two campaigns are the peoples of Iraq and Afghanistan, who did suffer losses disproportionate to the uh, guerrilla forces that, that were hosted in their country. Well, the other, the other factor in, in um in war of insurgency, a guerrilla war, whatever you want to call it, is if, if you are going to get um, local people to align with what you believe your mission is, they also have to believe that their own government will be credible because if their government falls in those kinds of environments, they're going to be dead or in re-education camps. You know, in South Vietnam, a million people went into re-education camps. And I think that's one of the reasons you saw the, the uh, the uh, Afghani military fall apart so quickly when there was a total loss of credibility toward the end. The Americans were pulling out, the signals were bad, Bagram was, was closed, which was a horrible mistake. Uh, and they're looking around and they're going, um, all right, now if I continue to do this, I'm going to get whacked. And, and if I go over to the other side, you know, I'm, maybe I'm not going to get whacked. Maybe they'll bang me around a little bit. And the other piece of that in Afghanistan is I don't I don't understand why this is never really openly discussed or rarely openly discussed is that Afghanistan's a narco state. And the the warlord in a lot of these areas where you would go out to was also the drug lord. I mean, I really saw that when I was up in Kunar, you know, the uh, the warlord up there uh, who was providing workers uh, for uh, an expansion of a special forces base. Um, you could look across, uh, you know, down this mountain, across a stream on the other side of, this, of, the, of, the, of the river there was opium fields as far as the eye could see. It looked like rice paddies in, in Vietnam. And, you know, that's, that's their boss uh, in the, on these local areas. So, you know, they, you know, they will waver back and forth depending on where, where they believe survivability exists. Yeah, you, you really, and you really can't blame them. Because no, they're going to be can't. there long after we leave. That's another reason why they're, uh, you know, they're saying, okay, we'll let th these other guys do the fighting. I mean, you could you could uh, see it over and over again. And we had some really fine troops in Vietnam, by the way. I mean, Arvin troops, really really fine units. And um, Americans and some of these bigger battles uh, along the DMZ would say, oh, well, they were cowards they didn't want to go. A lot of it that was just cultural tone. You know, the, 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 uh, that culture did not want to, to openly uh, disagree with an American, even though they thought he was doing something stupid. So they'll just say, OK, we're just going to sit here and wait this out. We're going to be here 20 years from now still doing it. He's got a six month turnaround. He's going to be gone. Uh, you know, you, there's, there are credibility issues all through this uh, uh, in, in these types of wars that 
hardly, well, you know, don't often enough make it to the discussion level when you're looking in the, the newspapers and the news reports and those sorts of things. So, Dan, you, you say in the book, our primary failure in the war involved generalship. Uh, what's it like when you go to the AUSA uh, annual conference? You're probably persona non grata. Um, but I'm, I'm curious as to uh, what exactly the failure of generalship was. Was it um, that you and your colleagues and your very candid in uh, taking the blame upon yourself were in some way inept uh, tactically or operationally? Um, or was it something else? Was it your uh, maybe something connected with one of the great virtues of your uh, profession, which is the can-do attitude. Uh, you don't complain, you don't whine, you get a mission, you do the best to uh, uh, execute it to the best of your ability. And maybe as a result of that otherwise, uh, you know, very laudable sort of mindset, uh, the rest of us got you know, sort of uh, lulled into a false sense of complacency that we could make these two things uh, work. So what exactly was the failure of generalship in your view? I think it was something that's that's easy to say in climate control rooms, but it's hard to do in real life. Um, the vast majority of generals are, are middle-aged men, you know, in their 50s, even early 60s. Um, they're no longer as energetic as they used to be. Basic principle of leadership is that you, the, the commander has got to see what's going on, be out there and be seen to share hardship and risk with the soldiers, Marines, sailors, whoever you're out with. And um, what I saw was the vast majority of American general and flag officers had never been out on a patrol, a raid, spent a night out in the field. I mean, I'm not talking about one, I'm talking about one night any night. The average general officer would fly in in a helicopter, um, pass out coins, maybe a few award, you know, medals, you know, Purple Hearts that have been earned in combat or Valor Awards, shake everybody's hand, get a PowerPoint briefing and blast off. Um, when you don't understand what's going on in the battlefield, you make poor decisions. Um, I, I got a lot of stuff wrong as far as decisions I made or didn't make in the war. The one thing I think I, I got kind of right was I spent a lot of time out with our forces on small unit operations. I used to go to units and, you know, they figured, okay, it's a general. First of all, I would drive. I would come in in a vehicle on the ground. I did not generally use a helicopter. It's amazing what you can see when you're proceeding on ground convoys. And sir, just for Senator Webb's interest, I spent a lot of time in and around Ramadi and on route Michigan between Ramadi and Fallujah, where there's a large number of Iraqi forces were fighting against those insurgents out there in Anbar province, just where your son was stationed. Um, but I think you've got to get out there. I mean, the, the Germans who know something about war, at least the, the old Germans used to, you know, used to refer to finger spitzengefühl, the fingertip feeling, the idea that you've been there enough so that when you hear something, see something, know something, you, right away, I know what that was. Too many times my counterparts were making decisions based on PowerPoint slides or what some bright young staff officer had told them. They had no concept of what was going on. What does this lead to? It leads to crazy, 
tactical rules and rules of engagement that limit the ability of our forces to defend themselves. It's people who would mouth statements like, we have absolute trust and confidence in our junior leadership, and then they would attempt to micromanage night raids, rules and things, you know, saying, hey, I trust the sergeants and officers, but don't enter a mosque unless the following six conditions are met, call back mother man. When my son was an advisor, it took a brigadier general to clear the use of Apache helicopter rocket fire if they were in contact. I'm not talking about pre-assault fires. I'm talking about in contact with the Taliban. Um, you know, and that's that's wrong. That's that's exactly wrong. But I think it comes from a basic failure in leadership. And in my mind, that has nothing to do with Washington politics. That has nothing to do with uh, with counterinsurgency doctrine. That has to do with the basic responsibility of leaders, which is to see and be seen and to share hardship and risk with their soldiers. That's the way good leaders have done it throughout history. That's certainly the way I was taught by the Vietnam veterans that taught me. And I don't know why suddenly that was set aside. Quote, unquote, this is a squad and platoon war. With modern communications, up to and include a four-star general can be out on the ground with any squad or platoon in the Army and Marine Corps and have absolute communications back to headquarters. There's no reason you can't get out there. There were people who did. You know, Stan McChrystal gets a bad rap because of the, the Michael Hastings, you know, runaway general article that got him fired for some comments he and his subordinates made about leadership in Washington. But to his great credit, McChrystal went out when he was the special operations commander, even when he was the four-star commander in Afghanistan. And that Hastings article, the part nobody read, they read all the juicy jokes and smart remarks, talks about him being out with squads on patrol as a four-star general. That was very rare. One of the reasons people have so much respect for General Jim Mattis is because he used to do that. But I'm telling you, you could name him on one hand. And that's no way to fight, let alone win, a war. Yeah, let me, I, let me give you uh, two, uh, two reactions to that. I mean, I think that when you look at the general officer, uh, the, the reputation and the, the credentials and that sort of thing, I, I think there, there, are, there is a gradation there that I want to talk about. But first, let me say, uh, I, I think when you, when you hit on PowerPoint presentations, I mean, you, you, really, you really have hit one of the jugular issues in terms of how this this uh, generation of military leaders work. I can remember when I got up to Kunar in, in Afghanistan and we, we, we spent a couple of nights in this uh, special forces uh, operating base. Um, the first thing that the, the uh, commanding officer had me do was to read a five page PowerPoint on what they were going to do if that base was attacked. You know, and excuse me, I mean, I, I saw a lot of contact in Vietnam as a rifle platoon and, and company commander. And, you know, you, don't, you can't do your plan before the action happens. You have to be able to, to uh, see what's going on, to adapt to it, to, you, know, to, you know, use your brain, you know, use the training of your people, et cetera. And I can remember going into General Petraeus's office when I was a senator and they tried to show us, I mean, I, I was the only senator there who was able to break down their PowerPoints just, just because of, I, was, I used to be a, a data dink and it went up from the time I had in the Pentagon. Um, but they were showing us conclusively on their PowerPoints how this whole thing had been turned around and they were using you know, selective data from different year points and this sort of thing on their, on their chart. You really had to do it there. They talk fast. Uh, you, had to, you had to be able to slow this thing down in order to figure out that you know, a lot of this just wasn't really accurate. Um, 
And, and you know, the, the notion of showing up, you know, of, of giving. Also, by the way, uh, General Senshi mentioned the, the, the German military doctrine. I spent a lot of time with the German army when I was Assistant Secretary of Defense uh, and, and went out on operations with them and, and uh, watched what they were doing, even in the 1980s, you know, the, the mid-1980s. They had an exceptionally capable military. And one of their key doctrines was Alftrag's tactic. And basically that meant you, you give your subordinate a mission and you do not interfere in how that mission is being accomplished unless he is getting ready to destroy his, his unit with some sort of you know, stupidity. They just don't. And that's how you could see, even in these World War II battles, how you know, larger German units would, could maneuver on the battlefield, you know, you know, large swaths of maneuver in order to adapt to what was uh, being seen on the battlefield. I had, I had more leeway uh, as a rifle platoon commander in Vietnam than, than probably a battalion commander had in, in Afghanistan or, or Iraq. Um, so, I mean, I think it's a very valuable point <clears throat> that you have to get out and see what's going on. You have to trust the people below you and you have to let them do their job. Um, the other area though, and, and something that I, I really want to get your thoughts on the um, general, because I, you know, you, you, you know, I think you and I have a, a, a shared uh, uh, history on this. That I lost a lot of friends when I first said uh, in, in O2 that you can't do this, that you can't, you can't go into Iraq without empowering China and having a total strategic blunder. And it took a few years <laughs> for some of my, you know, for some of the people I'd known for a long time to, you know, to realize I wasn't some anti-war puke out there. I was, I was trying to say, that, how do you use your military? Um, but one of the things that has really troubled me um, since the 9-11 uh, period is this feeling I, uh, from people on the outside, like me looking at, but also from the junior uh, troops in the, in the military that, that, that the general officer corps, particularly at the very top, the, the four stars um, have moved away from their from their people, uh, and it's it's a it's a trend that we co are concerned about in many areas in our society right now when we try to solve problems. And there is a feeling among so many people in in this country that the elites uh, have moved away from the people to the point they do not understand what that what the, uh, uh, the typical person is having to go through. And you know, part of this was the I, I think the the overadulation of the top military leaders as the, the, these uh, wars went forward because we wanted to do something. We wanted to, to you know to have the, uh, uh, some way to uh, counter what had happened in, in 9/11 in a way that the world would see that we were strong. But all of a sudden, it's these 9-11 flags at, at, at the top were, were becoming sort of media figures. I mean, one, one of your, uh, the points in your book talked about, you know, Petraeus was something like a MacArthur, Mattis was something like George Patton, um, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And, you know, there weren't any MacArthur's in this war, you know, and there weren't any George Patton's in this war. Um, and it's just a fact. But and I'm, and I'm, I'm going to give you one one observation on this from the, you know, from the, a different uh, set of experiences that I had. When I came to the Senate, my first day, I introduced a post 9-11 GI Bill. I wrote it before I became 
uh, a, a senator. I'd talked about it for years. I was a counsel in the House Veterans Committee for four years during the Carter administration. Modeled it after the, the, the World War II GI Bill, but it was basically designed to take care of these one-term enlistees who are American patriots uh, who go out, do the hard work, and then go back and in, in, in try to readjust to civilian life. That was the original purpose of the World War II GI Bill. And at that time, 74% of those who went into the Marine Corps left the Marine Corps on or before the end of their first enlistment, about 67% of the Army, and about half of the, the Air Force and the Navy. These were citizen soldiers. This is not something that the military should have been concerned about. But your best advocates for military service are those people. They're out there. And they weren't getting, they weren't getting the attention of the, the active duty military folks. They were just saying goodbye. We're taking care of our career force. So we passed this GI Bill. It took us 16 years. Um, and it's excuse 16 months, excuse me. It was a sort of a modern day miracle to get this get this through. We, it was opposed by the Bush administration. They thought that the bottom was going to drop out of retention in, in the uh, in the military. But all that being said, it's been hugely successful. And I'm not exaggerating. 90% of the flag officers who came to see me when I was in the Senate after that time, for whatever reason, would start off with saying, I want to thank you for this GI Bill, because now my kids can go to college on the transferability portion of it, where I can transfer my, you know, my GI Bill rights to my kids. And I'm sitting there going, what are you saying? You know, I'm glad your kid can do that. But what about all your troops? What about all these people who went out and did these things for you? How come you're not in here saying, now that these young men and women who worked so hard and risked their lives can come back and have a first-class shot at the future. What's going on here? I mean, do you see that as a breaking point or is this just something that's an anomaly? No, I, I, I sadly, I think you're getting a, a reflection there. You know, they used to talk in World War I about Chateau Generals, the idea that the, the senior command never visited the trench, never went on a trench raid, never went out at night. Um, but they were back sitting in a French Chateau sticking pins in a map. I think today we have the digital Chateau. You know, it's the PowerPoint, it's the nice, you know, Houston mission control setup they have at these base camps and stuff like that, where they think they're controlling the war. Um, you know, you hit it right there. I mean, wars are fought and won by young people out there, dirty, sweaty, tired, scared, all that. And the thing that can settle them down, the thing that can make them understand is when the senior sergeants, the senior officers are present there with them, the experienced guys helping them understand that you get a feel for that. And, it, and it, it, I agree with you. And it makes a difference. And, and it is telling. I wonder how many of those um, general flag officers who came in and thank you. And I might add, by the way, my daughter went to the university of Chicago and the university of Illinois for hers on transferable GI credit. So I'm one of them, but I wonder how many, but you didn't uh, come in here and that wasn't the first thing you were talking about when you came in. Here. It sure <laughs> wouldn't have been, but I would have thanked you. I would have certainly thank you for that GI bill. And I'll tell you why. We were having a real challenge, um, not so much with retention, but with enlistment during the first part of this war. Everybody was all hyped up in 2001, 2003. 05, the Army was scraping the bottom of the barrel to get volunteers. And part of the reason why was there was a feeling of, hey, this whole thing is set up for me to stay in for 20 to 30 years. What about if I just want to serve my country? The new GI Bill 
directly address that group of citizen soldiers. And to me, let me quickly interject, that's something right, important. General, because I, you know, when when I had that that uh, legislation uh, when I introduced it in front of the Congress. The Pentagon would come in and they say, we, we recruit the soldier, we retain the family, and it was all retain, retain, retain. And I, when I introduced this GI Bill, I said exactly what you were saying. Listen, I'm a manpower guy. You're going to recruit. You're going to recruit with something like this. And, and I, you're, you're right on point here. And the 74% of the Marines who leave, they are your best advocates in the communities when they, when they go out. And you know what, to give it proof, if you see the ones in public life now, either the ones that are running for office, the ones that are organizing their own business, the ones that are active in these discussions and school boards that identify themselves, hey, I'm a Marine. And you know, as we know, the only ex-Marine is Lee Harvey Oswald, everybody else is a former Marine. <laughs> but, um, but I think that's true. I mean, that's, that is the backbone of America. And I'll tell you, I mean, one of the other books that you wrote, Born Fighting, I, I did read, and talking about that backbone culture of America, these people are out there right now, and there's over a million of them in our society. And I'll tell you, um, it was important to look after them in the war. I don't think that I and the other generals did a great job in the war looking after them, but I think our country's done a little bit better for them than we did for their Vietnam predecessors. Well, we did and we didn't, Dan. We, we have rhetorically i mean we love the military we senator webb was out here for the uh, pregame festivities for a notre dame football game and uh, we have the tri-mill uh, color guard out there and we had a uh, navy fa 18 flyover and people are hooping and hollering uh, and then they're saying, okay, that's uh, five minutes. Now let's get to what we're really here for, which is the football game. And, well, it and, was a football game. I mean, you know. Well, no, no, but, I, but, but the, the, the point is, is that um, the, the rhetorical climate today in terms of uh, the American body uh, politics view of the military is quite adulatory. I actually think we sort of overdo it. But the reality is, is that the percentage of people in our population who've served and particularly served in the wars of the last 20 years is infantismal, one half of, uh, of 1%. Um, and so in a way, we're in the best of times and in the worst of times in terms of civil military relations. We love you guys, but you know, get out of the way. Let's watch the NASCAR race or let's watch the football game. And by the way, don't ask me to send my kids uh, to uh, do a, uh, a tour downrange. Uh, I mean, it, it, in a way, the, uh, the backbone culture that you and Jim were talking about, the, the culture of the uh, Vietnam veterans, you know, that we see here in South Bend, where many people actually uh, did their, uh, their bit, uh, ha has changed uh, and changed irrevocably. And, and I'm not sure that uh, that culture based in military experience um, really exists in modern America. Am I, am I being unfair? Well, I, I would say, you know, since I am the, the cranky old guy among our professors at uh, NC State, I'm, I'm the old veteran and stuff, but uh, I'm sure they're probably the only one, right? Day. 
I am not. There are three of us in my department. Uh, one, a Vietnam era um, Air Force, he was Cold War uh, Air Force Intel. Uh, one, an Army uh, National Guard Guardsman, also late Cold War um, Desert Storm time for period. But here's the one thing I would mention. Um, every year in my military history class, I always start with a demographic check. How many people in here are veterans? And I've had a few veterans in class, and I've had people that served in the war that I served in and stuff like that. So you get that. So sometimes a couple of veterans, you know, okay, how many people are in ROTC? A few more hands. And then I'd say, how many people have a, an immediate relative, somebody in your immediate family that served in the military? Half the hands will go up. And then now in NC State, 85% of our student bodies from North Carolina, our state has a huge propensity to serve. When I asked the question, I said, include your grandparents, aunts, and uncles. It's almost every hand. And what I would say is we sometimes in America, this old dude, old person attempted to be a history professor, but you know, we have a tendency to conflate the, the intense hothouse of our, of our coastal media centers as being America. That is not America. Regular America does respect the military and regular America, it may not be that person that served, but I guarantee you they have a cousin, brother, relative friend, I look at my immediate family. I mean, my my dad, Korean War infantry. By the way, Senator Rebel well will appreciate this. My father was one of the guys east of Chosen with the 31st Regimental Combat Team, almost wiped out by the Chinese. He came out thanks to the U.S. First Marine Division. And nothing but good things to say about the Marines. Of course, his brother served with the Marines in Korea. Um, but, you know, my dad was in. I mentioned my son served. Um, you know, in my neighborhood when I was growing up, and this was a suburb of Chicago, two doors down, the guy was in the army serving in Vietnam as an artillery draftee. The guy next to me was a military policeman who had joined on his own and was serving in Europe. I mean, when I moved across the street, another, another person served in the army. I mean, that's the world I've lived in. And, um, you know, you mentioned even at the University of Chicago, a school that has no ROTCs, but yet even in the 80s, when you went there, you ran into multiple people who were military or military related. John Mearsheimer, our mutual professor, class of 1971, West Point, Air Force Service with the Strategic Air Command. I think we sometimes tend to, to take the raw number of the currently serving and forget it's the tip of a much bigger iceberg. And those families are involved. The extended families are involved. That's the cheering that I hear at a football game or something when I when I see the flag come on and they honor that color. Well, yeah. I mean, okay. uh, of course, none of John's uh, children or grandchildren have served. And it's same in my family. I mean, my, although his sister did. Yeah, but uh, yeah, his his generation, <clears throat> which was basically the Vietnam generation, was it. Um, and you know, my family, my my father did a obligatory time in the Navy, serving with the Marines. His father served in the Navy. Nobody since then. Um, and I think uh, in, in terms of my faculty colleagues, I can't think of uh, anybody uh, with, uh, with any military service. So there are two Americas. There is the America uh, that you're a part of and that's overrepresented uh, in the military. And then I think there are the rest of us. Um, and it's a complicated issue. Well, let me, uh, let me, uh, let me just say you're both right. And, <laughs> and, and, and for 
We're in deep trouble if Jim is reasons. the voice of reason and moderation. <laughs> no, no, no. I just, I, 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 I think uh, I've, since I've had a different set of experiences in, in some ways, let me, let me just say, first of all, that uh, even uh, like Dan, when, when you were talking about the way the Vietnam veterans were treated, you had this phenomenon that, that we were discussing or that you were discussing earlier that in the, you know, the media centers and in, and in major academia, there's one sort of one attitude that is sort of put out there as the prevalent attitude about service. But even in the Vietnam period, we, uh, Vietnam era, we did a study when I was on the, on the House Veterans Committee as, as a full committee counsel. Uh, we we, we uh, did a $6 million study, which was a lot of money back in 1979. Uh, and we, we had the Harris Poll do this study about attitudes of Vietnam veterans and toward Vietnam veterans. And, and uh, we, we picked Harris because they were, uh, between Harris and Gallup, the, the more uh, ostensibly left wing. We wanted something that would, would be acceptable to even people who were, were not particularly uh, in favor of what we had done in Vietnam. 91% of the people who served in Vietnam were glad to serve their country. 74% enjoyed their time in the military to some point. Two out of three would do it again, even knowing the end result. And this was when you, know, you turned your collar up uh, if you were a Vietnam veteran, you didn't really wanna be, uh, be seen. And the feelings toward the veterans at that time, the average, uh, the average rating for, for those who served in Vietnam was 9.8 out of 10 by the American populace. Now, you didn't see that you know, from, the, from these other places that were generating opinion. In fact, when AP did a, a, a story on this, this survey, they mentioned one out of three wouldn't go again. You know, they pull the negative and throw it, throw it out there. And what you have is demographically, particularly, you know, I, I, I wrote about the Scotch-Irish migration and the cultures that, that you've gathered around it, but middle America ha has always had really strong feelings about service, military service, any type of service. You know, when the, when the flag is planted, you go, that's my family history. Um, but uh, at the same time, even there, and this is, Mike, what, what I think you're talking about, you're seeing less of a, of a tendency. I, I, and I'm I really concerned about this when I, you know, my, my, my son went step forward and, and, and did it. And a lot of his, his contemporaries are now saying, I'm not going to let my kid do this. You know, they went out there and they did all these things and we came back and what did they do? You know, what do they, how do they really look at us? They can pat you on the back and say, oh, thank you for your service. Um, you know, but as long as I don't have to go, <laughs> you're doing great, you know? And so I have a, you know, I have a concern, but I, I honestly do believe that the, that the feeling inside people's heart and you know, the, the average person in America really, really respects, uh, you know, the, the, those who have served over the generations. So Dan, you're my second favorite unsuccessful general. My first favorite is Thucydides, the Athenian, um, who uh, uh, had an unfortunate encounter with the Spartans uh, at Amphipolis in 428 BC. Um, but that defeat <clears throat> launched his career, I think, as one of the most incisive commentators, not only of his own uh, city state of Athens, but also international politics. 
I think we Americans had a great run from uh, the 1980s until quite recently, and I'm glad that we did. But I don't think success is always the best teacher. I sometimes think uh, defeat and hard knocks teach even more important lessons. So what should we as a country learn about war from these two wars that we lost? Well, I mean, you're exactly right. Uh, you can learn and you should learn more from things that go wrong. Um, so what should we learn? First thing I would say is do not take war lightly. Um, no matter who the opponent is or what you your personal or professional assessment is of them, they will attempt to, to win and they will use strategies and tactics that lead them to victory. Um, I think we, we grossly underestimated our opponents in both Afghanistan and Iraq. We misinterpreted the type of war we were fighting. Yeah, we won the phase that was our phase, you know, the, the go in and schwack them phase. That went very quickly and nicely. Then we fought their war for the next 20 years. And, um, and so we should not take our opponents lightly. I'm actually, and I know I'm going to sound old fashioned saying this, I'm actually in favor of the old school method of how our country goes to war, which is to say, you have a public debate uh, and then there is a vote for the war as in declaration thereof. I don't think that's, I don't, and again, I'm only a history guy now and, a, and an old retired guy, but I don't think it's within the authority of the chief executive to commit our forces to a lengthy war just on, that's an emergency power. Uh, it's not meant to exist for 20 years. And I realized there were, um, there was legislation that permitted both the Afghan and, and Iraqi campaigns. We never re revisited. I mean, Senator Webb was part of this and, and he knows what I'm talking about only too well. A lot of rhetoric about how screwed up the wars were, but I still don't see the on record vote that ever pulled the plug on any of it. And, um, and I think that that constitutional debate is fundamental when we go to war. I'm not talking about a quick reprisal strike. I'm not talking about protecting an embassy. Those things have to be handled on the fly and Americans understand that. But we committed ourselves to two multi-decade counterinsurgencies with very little public debate. In fact, the average American thought this was all a response to the 9-11 attacks. That response was over in the first few weeks. Everything since then was sadly too much undebated. And so that'd be the first lesson learned, follow our constitution. The second one, We've got to have an honest after-action report in the military and, and change the way we do stuff. If we keep doing stuff the way we're doing it, we're going to have the same result. We clearly did not pay attention to what happened in Southeast Asia enough to not repeat some of the same mistakes after 9-11. Um, and that was after a major reform effort in all of our services. I see, uh, with the possible exception of, of the comment on the Marines, a lot of people find, I know General Berger very well, a lot of people find his commitment to the fight in the South China Sea to be excessive, wrong, et cetera. At least he's trying to change something. My service, much as I like Jim McConville and the other senior leaders as people, uh, as, my, as far as my service is concerned, the U.S. Army, we're almost ready to refight the 1944 campaign in Northwest Europe. Change has got to come. Well, on yeah. that... Let me, Please, go, let me go in just uh, two minutes here, because I know we, we're way over on our time. But um, one of the things that uh, 
General Bolger, you said, it was, which I strongly agree with, is you, you, we really do need to have uh, a, a much more uh, affirmative participation by the Congress in, in some form or another. I've written about this uh, again and again and tried to, tried to bring that to the table when I was in the Senate in, in many different ways, including the, the, the stupidity of the whole Libya incursion, which uh, we couldn't even get a, a, a debate on on the, on, the, on the floor. But whether it is a formal declaration of war or a, or a formal re, uh, you know, reauthorization of some uh, a, you know, a, agreement in the, in the Congress that uh, uh, military action can take place, so, something needs to happen that's not there. The Congress has just, since the time I worked in, in the, in the ni- 1970s, has just become almost irrelevant to this process and it's not, not where it should be. Um, so, and, and, the, and the second one is, I think the, the, the top general officer leadership and, and admiralty needs to be held accountable. They are not being held accountable. And particularly these people at the very top who end up you know, with uh, you know, a lot of rewards for um, something that I, I think they should be apologizing for, frankly. Uh, they need to have a, 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 we need to have an accountability as things go on, not just in, in an after action report. And wars, particularly extensive wars, need to be entered with a clear statement of what the objective is going to be when, and when you know you will be done. Uh, that's, that's not that hard to do. Then now that, that way people are moving toward uh, it, you know, it's some sort of end. How does this end? As, as someone once said at the beginning of, of all of this. <laughs> so sorry for that, but go ahead, Mike. Well, I was going to say that's a uh, great sort of to-do list. Uh, Senator, I hope you'll take on <clears throat> again uh, part one of that to-do list uh, because I think the country really needs to hear uh, the uh, rationale for uh, the, the affirmative and active role in Congress in the declaration of war that was certainly central to uh, our founders' vision of the separation of powers. Um, and uh, you could be a really uh, powerful uh, voice on that as you are on uh, so many other things. But uh, uh, we've got a lot of great issues uh, still on the table, but uh, we're also out of time. Uh, so let me just close by uh, thanking again uh, my friend and former classmate, uh, Dan Bolger. You, you've written so many terrific things um, and ought to be proud that so many of them were before the fact rather than uh, ex post facto. No Monday morning quarterbacking for Dan Bolger, usually uh, Friday afternoon. So uh, congratulations uh, on all your uh, success. And uh, I'm glad to now call you a colleague as uh, a fellow college professor. Although as George Will once said, college professor the mud slinging starts already but uh, I still think it's a uh, honorable undertaking but uh, uh, I have a vested interest Jim always uh, a pleasure to uh, be with you uh, for outside the box and general general very good to be with you appreciate all your uh, your remarks thank you my honor to be here 
If you'd like to follow the Notre Dame International Security Center seminar series, please visit our website at politicalscience.nd.edu forward slash N-D-I-S-C forward slash or follow us on Twitter at hashtag N-D underscore I-S-C. Please note that opinions expressed in the seminar series are solely those of the participants or speakers, not of the International Security Center or the University of Notre Dame, which take no institutional position. Music for this podcast is licensed under Sample Swap.